This evening I'd like to speak about wise intention. The story of the Buddha's enlightenment is one of the most profound and inspiring stories in the Buddhist tradition. And it's said that when the Buddha sat beneath the Bodhi tree on the eve of his enlightenment, that he sat with an unshakable resolve to be present and to be still until he awakened to an understanding of what was true and awakened to an understanding of what it meant to be free. And during the passage of that night beneath the Bodhi tree in the story, it said that Mara came to the Buddha in many different forms, assaulting him with temptation, attempting to turn Siddhartha away from his intention or to divert him from the intention that he began to sit with. And it said that Mara appeared with Mara or the forces of delusion appeared in the uh, with promises of pleasure, that Mara appeared in the form of lust, in the form of greed, in the form of doubt, in the form of anger and hatred and fear. And as the story goes, the response of Siddhartha was not to resist, not to become agitated, not to become fearful, but that the response of Siddhartha was to say to Mara, I know you, to be present in the face of this variety of temptations with a sense of welcoming, a willingness to be clear, to open wholeheartedly, without resistance or craving. And it's said that this equanimity or this balance and clarity of Siddhartha dissolved the power of Mara. And as the, the symbology that is used is that the poisonous arrows of Mara meeting with the unshakable resolve and commitment of, of Siddhartha were transformed into flowers. Now this story of Siddhartha, it is a story of commitment. It is a story of vision. It's a story of very profound and clear intention. It is the very presence of these qualities of commitment and vision and clear intention that make this story of the Buddha's awakening into a very timeless story, a story that continues to inspire many of us. This story of Siddhartha, it is also, I think, a universal story. It is not just a story that occurs only in the Buddhist tradition, Rather, this story of the Buddha's awakening is a kind of archetypal story that's found within all traditions. It's the story of a pilgrimage, a quest, the undertaking of a sacred journey. Sometimes I think it's helpful to reflect on how very, very different 
this story of Siddhartha's awakening would be if it was missing or uh, devoid of these qualities of commitment and vision and clear intention. Imagine if we had passed down to us in this tradition a story where Siddhartha was kind of wandering around India, you know, sort of confused and happened to come across a Bodhi tree and was feeling kind of worn out and decided to sit down a while and hang out as long as it wasn't too hot and there weren't too many mosquitoes and that he brought with him, you know, a picnic in case he got hungry and, you know, sort of said, well, I'll sit here as long as my knees don't hurt, you know, and if any of these things happen, I'm going to give up and go back to the palace and continue partying. The entire Buddhist tradition, of course, would need to be rewritten. Our entire approach to meditation would also be rewritten. You know, Gaia House Meditation Room would feature beds and reclining seats, you know, and five or six meals a day, and everybody would have a nice hot water bottle that came with their cushion. You know, this element of intentionality and renunciation and clarity and somewhat simplicity is a part of the pilgrimage story. Now, when we come on retreat, when we come into a meditation center, we are very often invited to look upon this time as entering into a sacred space. In this particular space, each one of us is making our own pilgrimage undertaking our own journey. In many ways, we are walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. It doesn't imply in any way that our journey will be exactly the same or should be a replica of the journey of Siddhartha or the journey of the Buddha. When we come into this space, we come with our own story, our own history. We come with our own aspirations and ideals, which are somewhat unique to each one of us. Yet in our, own, in our journey, there are some very parallel themes that we share with each other, that we share with everyone else who has ever undertaken a journey of questioning and exploration. Probably very few of you, if any of you, ended up here at this time by accident. Most of us come to meditation and to make a journey out of a sense of heartfelt longing and aspiration and intuition that guides us. Most of us come to undertake a path out of a longing to find the end of suffering and conflict and separation, out of a longing for peace and understanding and freedom. Most of us enter into a path because we are looking for a way 
to let go through wisdom and compassion of the causes of suffering and sorrow and looking for a way to nurture through wisdom and compassion the qualities of heart and mind that lead to freedom and oneness. In the story of Siddhartha, <coughs> the Buddha was visited or assailed by the power and the forces of Mara in the guise of the various obstructions and hindrances, all in the space of one night. And those obstructions and hindrances were dissolved in the same night by the power of his vision and the clarity of his intention. This is obviously a story of a kind of an ideal world. Now, we may find that our hindrances actually last a little longer than one night. The hindrances in the Buddhist tradition are called obscurations. Obscurations of mind. Greed, anger, resistance, fear, dullness, restlessness. All of these are called obscurations because they obscure our capacity to see clearly, our capacity to see what is, that they are forces of heart and mind that cloud our vision and that lead to confusion. They lead us to be lost in our meditation and in our lives. For many of us, the obscurations that we experience are repeat visitors. They return not just once, but again and again. But we also see very clearly in our experience that our obscurations are also not dissolved by willpower or by resistance or by agitation we begin to understand more and more clearly the ways in which our own obscurations are going to be dissolved and are dissolved by clarity of intention, by vision, and by commitment. In meditation, as in our lives, it is very often wise intention that rescues us from being lost. If you have ever read many books um, from the Zen and the Mahayana traditions, you've probably read a whole number of stories where prospective students and disciples are, you know, made to stand outside the temple gates in the snow, you know, before they're admitted into the temple to receive teaching. So I have sometimes prospective students were sent to the kitchen to perform very lowly activities before they were ever permitted to receive teaching. Now these stories are not intended to illustrate a kind of punitive approach to meditation, you know, that we have to suffer before we're worthy of meditating. 
I think rather these stories are intended to portray for us the value of taking the time to reflect upon intention, upon what motivates us to practice, what moves us to practice. These stories that we hear from the Zen and the uh, other Mahayana traditions, they are also, I think, uh, they're not just ancient stories, um, you know, historical kind of anecdotes. I know for myself, when I first went to practice and asked a teacher to teach me, I mean, he very clearly just said no and sent me away for, uh, you know, a, a little number he repeated over many, many times over a period of a couple of months, actually, on a daily basis. And then one day, when I went to ask him to teach me, he gave me a box of noodles, which was my symbol of acceptance, apparently. But, of course, even that, you know, presumptuous, presumptuousness with which I had first gone to my teacher and said, you know, would you give me some teachings, didn't end upon my acceptance. You know, immediately he accepted me. I started asking for tantric teachings and was a little surprised when instead of receiving tantric teachings, I was sent off to, you know, reflect upon, you know, my relationship to my mother and my relationship to all sentient beings and my motivation and, you know, what loving kindness meant to me and karma and hell realms again for many, many months to come. What is emphasized in these stories and traditions is the real importance of clear intention. In fact, clear intention is the forerunner of the whole of the meditative path. Now, our actuality when we come into a retreat is that it is a time of stopping time of stopping in our lives. It's a time of a reflective pause. It's a time of returning home to ourselves, of letting go of our entanglements with the world, of temporarily letting go of many of our life commitments, so that it can be a time of simplicity that is dedicated to caring for just one moment at a time, so that this time can be fully devoted to simply being awake, to being present in ourselves and present in all moments. This intention to be awake and to be present is, of course, what makes this time into a sacred time, what makes this space into a sacred space. There is nothing that is intrinsically sacred about Gaia House or about being in a building that's becoming increasingly saturated with Buddha statues. There's nothing intrinsically mundane or worldly about sitting on a train or going to a supermarket. All moments and all times and all places, in fact, the whole of our lives is flavored very much by the intentions that we bring.
Now many times when we come on a retreat, we often have very sort of generalized intentions. You know, perhaps when you came, before you came on this retreat, you had some thoughts maybe about what you'd like to accomplish on this retreat. <laughs> Sometimes we come to retreats and we're looking for answers to difficult situations or we're looking to have certain kinds of experiences or we think this is a way that we're going to take care of ourselves or make ourselves happy. Sometimes before we come on a retreat, we think, well, I'll meditate in order to, in order to come to a decision about something, in order to get rid of something we don't like about ourselves, in order to get something. Now, these generalized intentions are not, not in any way irrelevant because they get us here. But when we are actually here, practicing, we generalized intentions are actually not all that helpful. When we are practicing, we are asked to call upon the power of applied intention and wise intention on a moment-to-moment -moment level. As all of you have experienced already, you know that there are a whole lot of different ways of sitting on a cushion. And I don't just mean posture. Probably all of us know that we can sit on a cushion and we have the, the look about us of being a totally fantastic yogi. You know, right posture, right uniform, you know, it looks good. And we all know that behind that facade of appearance, there can be a whole lot of different things going on. I personally have absolutely, and I think this is probably quite fortunate, absolutely no idea what you do when you sit. You also have no idea what I do when I sit. And there's no one here who is a psychic, psychic spy. You know, we know that we can sit on a cushion and we look great, and we can be spending all that time kind of um, you know, writing our Christmas shopping list for next year. You know, we can be planning our vacations. We can be rehearsing the ways that we may want to kind of take revenge upon someone we dislike. You know, we could be rearranging our furniture. You know, there, there could be all kinds of diabolical fantasies going on and probably have been going on. We know that there are countless different ways of sitting on a cushion. Sitting, you know, turning up, is obviously not something magical in itself. And sitting more doesn't make it more magical. You know, Ajahn Chah told a story about a, a student who came to him, you know, and he said, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not, getting, I'm not making progress fast enough, you know. He said, I really think I ought to be sitting many more hours in a day, and then finally I'm going to be enlightened. And Ajahn Chah said to him, well, you know, look at the chickens. They're great at sitting hour after hour on their nest. And you don't see a lot of enlightened chickens. <laughs> you know, time is not all that it happens to ask of us. Now, when we sit, we meet, of course, many of our own shadows and demons. 
When we sit, sometimes we meet forces of heart and mind that are pretty difficult, sometimes painful to be with. Sometimes when we sit, you know, we just sit and there, there may be so much dullness or sloth, you know, that we feel like we might as well have stayed in bed. We also see that it's very easy in our own minds, in our own consciousness, to kind of wander on and on in familiar territory. I mean, how many new, how many new mind states have you had today? Or on this retreat? How many places have you you, you know, how many demons or shadows or obscurations have visited you that are really, you know, kind of real novel territory? You know, it's, I've never been here before, you know. I've never been angry before, you know. Never been greedy before. What a revelation. We see how easy it is to kind of wander on and on in this territory that is so familiar to us. We also probably have experienced here that it's pre also pretty easy to get lost. It's pretty easy to get lost in the past, in the future, and it's pretty easy too to get lost in the present. It's pretty easy to feel <laughs> like we sort of get endlessly pushed and pulled and swallowed by one mind state or like or dislike after another. It is in the midst of this kind of swirl of activity, the repeat visitors, the obscuration, the familiar territory. It is in the midst of all of this that intention, that applied and clear and wise intention, is like a guiding light for us. It is like a pathway through the undergrowth. When I was in India some years ago, one of the things that people did at that time was that you sort of did the, the guru trail, you know, went and visited whichever guru happened to be, have a reputation for being outstanding at that time. And one of the gurus that I happened to visit was a guru called Pundiswan, who lived in the south of India on a trolley at a bus stop called Pundiswami bus stop. And the story of Pundiswami is that a farmer had once been out plowing his field and he'd seen this arm sticking up out of the ground. So he went and dug to see what else was attached to the arm and he found this person who was alive and well buried in the ground. So India being a place of miracles, quick miracles sometimes, this man was immediately elevated to sainthood and placed upon a trolley and surrounded by sadhus to serve him. And he became famous very quickly to the extent that there was a bus stop established. And people came from all over India to visit Pundiswami. And, you know, no matter whatever Pundiswami did, Pundiswami sat in that trolley for 25 years. And he never moved off the trolley. I mean, you think it's bad 45 minutes? 
Amen. He sat on this little trolley for 25 years, which is pretty amazing. You know, and just had curtains around it, and just occasionally the, the sadis would draw, you know, draw the curtains closed. You never knew what was going on, but just occasionally that would happen. And he really liked Coca-Cola, and always had a can of Coke in one hand, and a handful of rupees in the other. And people came from all of India to, to have darshan with Pundiswami and receive his blessing. And in re- people would speak about what happened for them when they went for darshan with Pundiswami. And, you know, some people would, would come away saying that, you know, he'd given them the answer to this dilemma they'd been facing for many years or that they'd had a really startling experience when they went for darshan. Or the other thing to tell you is that Pundiswami didn't talk. He only grunted when you went for darshan. And other people would say that he'd spoken to them in German or he'd spoken to them in Icelandic, you know, or, you know, I mean, really amazing, amazing stories. And other people would come away and say that absolutely nothing had happened for them and that this guy was, you know, some sort of psychotic nut sitting on this trolley. (laughs) What became clear is that because Pundiswami actually was surrounded with so much kind of anticipation that many for most people when they went to Pundiswami they went with a tremendous openness of heart and mind a tremendous willingness to be touched and and a very remarkable sense a commitment to being present I mean nobody wanted to have a wandering mind when they were having darshan with Pundiswami you know, so that people would go for darshan with, with these qualities of, of commitment and, and openness and um, respect for the moment and presence. And for many people, even if nothing magical happened for them, this was their miracle. This was their miracle to experience just one moment or a few moments of being present in such a way. That quality of openness, of course, is not found only in the world of saints and gurus in India. It is also found, very much, many of you will know, in the world of a child. You know, I know when my children were very small, sometimes I used to, you know, get out in the morning and I'd have this big plan about some adventure or something really exciting that we were going to do in that day, you know, and I'd tell them about it, you know, and build up the anticipation, the suspense, you know, where and it usually meant it usually involved arriving somewhere, you know, or seeing something in particular. You know, and a lot of energy would go into this kind of planning. And most times, you know, nine times out of ten, we would set forth on one of these pilgrimages, which is what they were for us. We would set forth and we would usually make it like five or ten yards outside the door. You know and we would, and and the children would discover something, you know, some really wonderful arrangement of pebbles, or you know, some really kind of very special moss that was growing in the wall, or a squirrel somewhere, and that would be it. But there was that same quality of that capacity to be touched, that openness to the moment. I think that sense of wonder that capacity for open-heartedness and connectedness 
is actually something that is very important to bring to our practice, to bring to our sitting and walking. There's something that happens as we open up a little bit in meditation. You know, in the beginning of practice, of course, we take everything very personally. You know, it seems that everything is happening to me. I think that can open up a little bit. And we have a greater sense of curiosity about the ways in which our hearts and mind actually move. You know, we see this remarkable capacity of our minds to, you know, to be so swirling with confusion and anxiety in one moment, in the next moment to feel so profoundly peaceful and happy and connected. We see the ways our minds can move into you know, this sort of darkness and despair. And in the next moment, we can be so touched by, you know, the, the sight of a robin on a branch. In some ways, in real, very real ways, when we can start to open to what happens within our rhythms and movements, I think we begin to appreciate the ways in which, the, in being connect, connected with this mind, we are actually connecting with all minds that in being connected with this body, we are connecting with all bodies. That in connecting with this moment, we are actually connecting with all moments. And if we can restrain ourselves a little bit from judgment or willpower or control, I think we begin to experience a sense of wonder and also a capacity to be surprised. And I think our, our capacity to grow and deepen as a human being is very much linked to our capacity to be surprised rather than to be stuck and entangled only with the images and conclusions that describe what we already know. In the midst of all of this swirl of busyness, we need to be able to draw to upon wise and applied intention. Now the Buddha spoke about two kinds of intention, which I touched upon the other morning. On one side, he put the intentions that arise in our hearts and minds, which are the intentions or the inclinations towards craving and grasping towards finding and holding on to pleasant sensations and the intentions that sometimes arise towards aversion and ill will, the intentions that at times arise towards harshness or cruelty. And of these intentions, the Buddha said, it becomes increasingly clear to us that they lead to the suffering of ourselves and others, that they obstruct wisdom, that they lead to conflict and difficulty, and they lead away from freedom. This is an important lesson for us to learn. On the other side, the Buddha placed other intentions, intentions which are not meant to be ideals, but intentions and approaches to the moment which can be cultivated and embodied and applied in every moment in our lives. 
And there are the intentions towards letting go, renunciation. The intention towards loving kindness, friendliness, acceptance. The intention towards compassion. And that these intentions, on a moment-to-moment level, lead to well-being and happiness of ourselves and others. That these intentions nourish wisdom and understanding. They bring clarity and they lead to freedom. It's also, I think, helpful to notice the intentions that the Buddha didn't mention. He didn't mention the intentions as being useful intentions, the intentions to dwell upon things, to analyze, to fix, to make perfect, or to control. But these intentions didn't even warrant a mention. The Buddha went on to say, to, to say that what we frequently think about and dwell upon will become the inclination of our mind. That what we frequently think about and dwell upon will shape the nature of our mind. In other words, what we pay attention to in a repeated way shapes and flavors and forms our world both inwardly and outwardly. Wise and compassionate attention is formed by wise and compassionate intention. Unwise attention is formed by unwise intention. Attention, the kind of attention we give to ourselves, to our world, is formed by the intentions that we bring. This is easy, something that is easy for us to see. There was this, there's a story of a rather cantankerous man who one day his axe went missing. And he looked everywhere for his axe and couldn't find it. What he saw instead was his neighbor's son. And immediately the thought arose in his mind, he has something to do with my missing axe. And the more that he looked at the child, the more the child looked like a thief, seemed to walk like a thief. He seemed to move like a thief. The man became convinced this child indeed had stolen his axe. And then one day, of course, he found his axe. His neighbor's child looked just like any other child. I think in our own experience, we see the truth of this, the way in which our world is formed by the kind of attention we bring, by what we pay attention to, and the way in which that attention is formed by the intentions we have. Take as an example, the classic example of, of course, the yogi on the cushion. Now maybe we see someone on this retreat that we we think we like. We've never met them, but we think we like them. You know, they look like the kind of person we'd like. You know, their appearance, the way they practice. You know, they just look like a very likable person. And then we see, happen to notice that this very likable person seems to be having difficulty on their cushion. You know, maybe they're fidgeting quite a lot and moving around a lot. Oh, we feel so concerned for them. You know, we're worried about them. You know, we're worried about maybe they've got a sore back, you know, or their knees are hurting. You know, we might even think we might want to offer them another cushion or, you know, help them out in some way. We really feel very concerned about them. 
And take another yogi on a cushion. Someone who we think we dislike. You know, then really not very pleasing to us. You know, right from the first day of the retreat, we were displeased, as a matter of fact, with this person. The way they act and dress and move and kind of hustle around the building. Well, they too have a problem on their cushion. You know? They're fidgeting too. They're also restless. Are we concerned? No. You say, what a schmuck. Why can't they sit still? <laughs> What's their problem, you know? Another way of disturbing me. It's two similar situations. Different kinds of attention. Different kinds of intention. Our mind and our world is shaped on a moment-to-moment level by what we give attention to. In a larger sense, the whole of our world, then, is shaped by the inclination of our mind. It is like this repeat, repeated attentions, the way we re- give repeated attentions to particular inclinations, it's almost like it forms a groove in the mind. You know, sometimes we're faced with really glaring examples of this. You know, you've probably met people you know, in the inner world who are kind of professional complainers, you know. Uh, you know, no matter what happens, well, no matter what situation they go into in their own life, could be the most idyllic situation, they find something to complain about, you know. You know, the, the table linen's creased, you know, or that person's nice butt, you know. Or this is a pretty neat place, but, you know, this kind of professional complainer. You've probably met people who are kind of professional optimists, you know. You know, you could be on your deathbed, and they'll say, well, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, you know, and I'm sure it'll be a better day tomorrow, you know. Just like you meet a professional pessimist, you know, you sneeze, and they tell you, you know, maybe you're coming down with sinus cancer, you know, or something of this nature, you know. The way in which the mind picks up these grooves, you know, through these inclinations, these inclinations of repeatedly giving attention in particular ways. Now sometimes, or many times, we have a question, are we even aware of the intentions that lie behind our thinking? Are we even aware of the intentions that lie behind the ways in which our attention actually settles. Often very not. Sometimes, sometimes instead, we may feel that we have very little choice in the ways in which our hearts and minds actually move. You know, isn't this true? You know, I mean, think about the thoughts you have today. How many did you choose? You know, think about sometimes the words that come from our mouths. You know, that kind of direct link between our tongues and our conditioning in these words spout forth, you know. Often we feel, that's not what I wanted to say. Often the ways in which we act or react, often we feel that we have very little choice, but that we often do feel instead that our thoughts and our words and our actions and our choices in many ways seem to be drawing upon a kind of almost bottomless well of conditioning from the past, from past experiences, feelings, memories that have shaped and are shaping the way that we see and think and feel in this moment. Now I think without awareness, this sense of 
having very little choice, or being out of choices, is, is sometimes very real. You know, and we, we can have these long histories that seem to kind of reinforce these kind of grooves in the mind. Sometimes histories that began before we were even born. You know, we say, well, you know, yes, I'm a pessimist. I come from a long line of pessimists, you know. I'm an optimist. Well, I've got generations of optimists behind me, you know. Complainer, well, my grandmother complained. You know, my great-grandmother complained. You know, we feel we have all this history that reinforces this sense of choicelessness. Now, in meditation, as we deepen in clarity and understanding, there's a movement that takes place. And that movement, one way to describe it is that it is a movement from choicelessness to choice to another kind, another, another quality, another dimension of choicelessness again. What happens as we practice is that instead of immediately acting upon or believing in or consenting to the variety of thoughts and feelings and memories that arise that are backed by a weight of conditioning, instead of immediately responding or consenting, we learn to pause a moment. We learn to be still for a moment, to attend to this moment. This is what we are doing in our practice. Instead of feeling so blindly compelled to be pushed and pulled by this conditioning, we come to know it more clearly. In the light of attention, we begin to see with wisdom as these thoughts and feelings arise. Part of that seeing with wisdom is beginning to see what is it, what it is that causes harm to ourselves or others, what it is that leads to conflict and difficulty, and what it is that leads away from freedom. In that moment of pausing, of being a little bit more still, also a little bit of space begins to open up. And with that space that opens up, there is also a greater sense of possibility and choice. Perhaps we see more clearly a wiser way to be in this moment what actually leads to freedom, what leads to clarity, what leads to happiness and well-being. We begin to see that more and more clearly. And in the seeing of that, we cultivate a different kind of intention. Instead of the intention to, to judge or reject or get rid of or to resist, we perhaps that a wiser intention in this moment to cultivate is perhaps the intention to let go or perhaps the intention to be present with more loving kindness, with more compassion. We see that this is a gift of freedom and care for ourselves and others. In beginning to 
see with wisdom, to see possibilities, and to see the power of wise intention, both the shape of our mind and heart and the shape of our world begins to change. Because we see how suffering is caused and how it can end on a moment-to-moment level. This is the foundation of all wisdom. We find, too, a harmony in happiness. The harmony that is found in letting go. The happiness that is found in loving kindness. The happiness that is found in being clear. The happiness that is found in compassion. And this becomes more and more the place in which we wish to make our home. And in which we come to rest in with a greater sense of ease. This is a process that becomes more natural. And a sense, a different sense of choicelessness begins to emerge. And it is the choicelessness of wisdom. Of no longer being able to act in a way or think in a way or relate in a way that causes suffering to oneself or others. The place of acting and speaking and thinking in a relating from a place within ourselves of clarity and happiness where wisdom guides us rather than being guided by the weight of conditioning we are guided by the power of understanding it is a different dimension of choicelessness now this quality of wise intention is something that is very worthy of giving attention to in our practice, in our lives. You know, no one can do that for us. To really explore, to really reflect upon what is our intention in this moment? What are, what are we committed to in this moment? What is our vision of this moment? What are we devoted to in this moment? It is something we can only do for ourselves. And in our practice, you know, there are a lot of clues. You know, if we see that there is a kind of continuity of suffering, if we see that there's a kind of continuity of the mind dwelling in a particular way, if we feel ourselves to be stuck or to be entangled or to be kind of driven by some mind state, well, this is a clue for us. You know, this is a major clue. This kind of experience is saying to us, wake up. What are we giving attention to? What is forming our world in this moment? And what, is, what kind of intention is present in this moment? Is it wise or is it unwise? And unwise doesn't mean that, you know, that the contents of our minds are bad or wrong. It doesn't mean that. Unwise doesn't imply bad or wrong. Unwise means Something is unwise because it leads to suffering. Because it leads to disharmony, it leads to disconnection. Those moments of feeling entangled are also moments of questioning and exploring what quality of attention and what kind of intention would make a difference in this moment, would lead to well-being and freedom. You know, bowing is 
very big in the Zen tradition. Sometimes in Zen retreats you bow to begin a sitting, to end a sitting, you bow to each other, you bow to the meditation room. And as one monk explained, bowing is not bowing to someone or bowing in front of someone. But in bowing, there is a bowing to the Buddha nature in all moments and all things. Suzuki Roshi once said, in your big mind, everything has the same value. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, between teacher and disciple. Everything is Buddha. You see something, you hear a sound, and there you have everything, just as it is giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood. The Buddha bows to the Buddha and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. Now I feel that when we approach our meditation and our lives with a commitment to wakefulness, and a willingness to learn and a commitment to being present and seeing clearly, then we are bowing in welcome. When we approach our lives and our practice with the intention towards loving kindness and compassion and letting go, we are also bowing in welcome. A meditation practice in itself, it is not something that is intrinsically magical, but there is something that is deeply magical that takes place when we approach our practice and each moment with these intentions towards loving kindness, compassion and renunciation, because this shapes our world. These intentions shape our hearts and minds, and they shape our world. And this is where we discover very profound wisdom. If we take a couple of minutes quietly together,